just a minute here and uh, prepare us to hear from God's Word and also to introduce our guest who is going to be bringing us God's Word this morning. So you guys are in for a real privilege, real treat. We have uh, a man who's become a real friend of me personally, a real friend of our church, Dr. Paul Aiken is down here. And you guys, he's been here with us before. Uh, many of you guys know he's taught in our seminary cohort. We'll say more about that in just a minute. But uh, Dr. Aiken is the provost, I'm not sure what that means, maybe he'll tell us what that means in a minute, uh, at Southern Seminary, who we partner with. Uh, he's the husband of Carrie, the father of four children. And he really has become a dear friend of this church and loves this church. We're grateful that he's here. So I'd like for you guys to give Dr. Aiken just a warm welcome this morning. So let me take just a second and tell you why specifically he's here. He's here because he loves our church. He's here because I think someone introduced him to Cheddar Rounds yesterday at Powell's. That's a big deal. Uh, but primarily, Dr. Aiken's been here for the last few days teaching as a part of what we call our leadership training program, our seminary cohort. And I want to make you aware of this if you're not already aware of it, an incredible gift and blessing we have right here in our local church. Uh, we partner with Southern Seminary and make it available for you as a member of our church and other churches that you can have seminary-level training right here through your local church in partnership with Southern Seminary. Uh, it's an incredible program, started back in 2013, and I just want to let you know the favor of God that we've seen on this over the last few years. Just read some stats to you that I think are really cool, and I say this as a praise to the Lord. Uh, we've had seven different cohort classes come through. Uh, 63 students have graduated or come through our cohort. Uh, these have represented nine local churches. Uh, locally, we've been able to work with these local churches. These seminary students have then gone out, or these trained students have gone out and served in four other states across America, two nations around the world. Uh, we've been able as a church to see pastors train, elders, worship leaders, kids ministry directors, college ministry directors, and watch this, godly moms and godly dads. So this is not just to train, you know, the professionals. Let me tell you the big benefit among many that has come out of this training in our church over the past two years, or the past several years. Men and women have been trained and equipped and have come out with a high view of God's Word, meaning they love Jesus more through His Word, and they've had a high view of the local church. And that is a huge benefit to us. So we're grateful for that. You say, that's something that I would love to be a part of. The next cohort is going to begin in August of 2023. If you're interested in being a part of that, say, I want to grow. I want to continue to learn, to know God through his word. Talk to Wes Tucker, talk to one of us. We'd love to talk to you about that, but we're grateful uh, for the gift that God has given us through this cohort. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, Paul, would you come on up? Uh, I'm going to pray for him. Uh, and then we're going to get you a podium. Don't worry, you don't have to preach without a podium. So I'm going to pray for Paul, uh, pray for our time together in God's Word this morning. He's going to open up the Scriptures for us. And I want to pray for you, pray for him, and then we'll open up God's Word to the book of Matthew this morning. You pray with me. Father, I thank you for the local church. I thank you for the gathering of your people. I uh, thank you as your Word says, Lord, that we can come and magnify the Lord together. Thank you for that gift. And God, I pray this morning that we are not merely hearers of your word, 
that we look in a mirror and walk away and forget what we see. But Lord, you enable us by your spirit to be doers of your word and we leave here changed. Pray we love you more as a result of this morning. Pray for my friend, pray for my brother, empower him, give him great freedom to break your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you, man. Thank you. Well, thanks, Mike. Good morning, church. It's good to, to be with you all this morning. I do bring greetings from Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. We, we love your church. We are grateful for your church. We love being able to interact with the students that are connected with your church. Uh, you have many, many friends at Southern Seminary, and so I hope you hear that this morning. I'm humbled and, and really glad to be back with you. It's always good to come back here. Every time I'm here, I'm encouraged and I'm thankful for your pastors. I'm thankful for your leaders. And just really, uh, my heart is full this morning as I stand before you to preach and proclaim God's word to you. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Those of you who, who know me personally, and, and every time I come here, hopefully that, that number will grow as I have more and more students uh, who get to know me a little bit. Uh, if you knew me personally, you would know that I'm generally a pretty positive, uh, upbeat, optimistic person. Uh, and that remains true this morning by God's grace. I'm still, still joyful, still optimistic. But God has put a, a sobering word on my heart this morning. Uh, my heart is, is heavy this morning as I continue to hear news from around the world about the ways that Christians are suffering and being persecuted for their faith around the world. In just the past month, I've heard about Christians in India who are being attacked by Hindu nationalists just because they're Christian. In just the past month, I've heard about Christians in Nigeria being attacked and brutally murdered by Fulani Muslim militants. Now, you may say that that seems like the other side of the world, but the reality is for us in Louisville, we have students on our campus from India, from Nigeria, and this is not far from home. Uh, their families, their churches are directly impacted by these attacks. I don't know if you know this or not, but in 2022, in, during a 12-month period, in just the country of Nigeria alone, there were 4,000 Christians who were killed. I think I have a picture maybe we can show up on the screen of of what it looks like for some of these Christians in Nigeria. There's, you know, these graves and different things that you'll see there if, if we're able to pull that picture up. Over 2,300 Christians were kidnapped and abducted for their faith. This is the reality of what it means to follow Christ in a place like Nigeria. But this is not just Nigeria. This is not just India. Last week, I had a friend tell me about a church, two churches in China, where the government, while they were meeting and gathering just like this, the government busted in and tried to shut down the meeting and tried to shut down the gathering. For many of our brothers and sisters around the world, this is reality. This is what it means to follow Jesus. There's a significant cost. And so in light of all that, I want to ask you a question this morning. Tri-Cities, what does it really mean to follow Jesus? What does it really mean to follow Jesus. And I believe we find the answer to that question in Matthew chapter 10. To, to set the context, Jesus is commissioning his disciples for mission. He's explaining to them what their mission is going to be like, but he's also explaining to them the things that they're going to have to endure if they choose to follow after him. He talks to them in verse 16 about trouble. He says, you're going to be sent out as sheep 
in the midst of wolves. He talks to them in verse 17 about suffering. He says, you're going to be flogged. He talks to them in verse 21 about betrayal. He says, brother will betray brother to death. In verse 22, he talks about hatred. He says, you're going to be hated by everyone because of my name. In verse 23, he talks to them about persecution. He says, when they persecute you in this town. Notice what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing his disciples for the hardship that is in store for those who choose to follow Christ. He says, there's going to be opposition and there's going to be difficulty if you choose to follow me. And it's in that context that Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 34, read along with me. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus in, in Matthew 10 here, I think, gives us two truths about what it really means to follow after him. Truth number one, if you're taking notes, following Jesus requires absolute allegiance. Following Jesus requires absolute allegiance. He says in verse 34, don't assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, what in the world is Jesus saying here? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Uh, the Jesus that we see here in Matthew chapter 10 is, is a very different portrait, a very different picture than the Jesus that we might be used to. You know, we love to hear about how Jesus tells us to love our enemies, how, how he heals the lepers and how he feeds the poor and the hungry. But Jesus at the end of Matthew 10 seems a little bit different. He's, he's very direct in his language and he's holding nothing back. He's speaking very directly to the people here. You know, sometimes in the South, I think all of us are, are used to this. We like to use kind of buttery, flowery language with people, right? Try to butter people up a little bit. We don't want to offend them, so maybe we tell them something that we really don't think, but we just kind of want to say nice things to them. Jesus is not doing that here. He's holding nothing back, and he's speaking directly to his followers. In fact, I think it's a bit startling for us to read and hear Jesus say, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Don't we sing about Jesus being the prince of peace? So what's going on here? Well, the answer is yes, in one sense, in the most important sense, Jesus did come to bring peace. But he came to bring a peace that was ultimately with God. He came to bring salvific peace. But one day, we know that Jesus is going to return and there's going to be an eschatological peace and the lion is going to lie down with the lamb and we know this is going to be true. But until that day, we know that the gospel is a stumbling block. The gospel creates barriers. It causes division. It causes conflict. And Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. And the gospel is the sword. The gospel is the sword because the gospel is a message that brings division. And in particular, Jesus is talking about 
conflict and division that exists between those who accept the gospel and those who reject the gospel. And he says this conflict is going to be felt and experienced in the deepest of human relationships in the family relationship. Listen to verse 35 again. A man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now this sounds a little bit startling to us, but I don't think I'm telling you anything new this morning. I think everyone in this room can relate to some degree to what Jesus is saying here. Let me ask you a question. When your family gathers for a national holiday or a birthday celebration or some kind of special occasion, what does your family talk about? We talk about sports. We talk about news. We might talk about cheddar rounds. Those things will change your life. We talk about who has COVID. You know, you fill in the blank. Those are the things that we talk about. One of the things we do not talk about, we don't talk about Jesus in the Bible. We don't talk about the gospel. Why is that? Well, because we know that honest discussions about Jesus in the Bible can get awkward. It can cause conflict. It can cause division. Meaningful conversations about Jesus, the church, the Bible, they, they make us feel uncomfortable because they have the potential to create conflict. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here that conflict within the family is to be expected for those who choose to follow Christ. But then he goes a step further. Notice, notice what he says in verse 37. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a, a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now let's not misunderstand Jesus here. He's not telling us that we need to dislike our family members. I have parents. I love my parents. I have children. I love my children. I have in-laws. I love my in-laws most of the time. You're probably the same. So what is Jesus getting at here? Well, Jesus wants us to love our parents, our spouses, our children, our siblings, but he demands that we love him more. More than anyone or anything else in this life, Jesus demands that we love him above all else. And this is what it means to be a Christian disciple. This is what it really means to follow after Christ. Now, some of you in this room, just looking around the room in a room this size, I'm guessing some of you know exactly what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 10. Maybe some of you have had to make a really difficult decision. Maybe when you chose to follow Christ, you knew that was going to bring conflict and hardship between a family member. That was going to put an obstacle between you and a loved one. And this has been true for Christians all the way back to the days of Jesus and the early church. I want to tell you a quick story that just kind of illustrates what Jesus is talking about here. And I want to take you back with me about 1,800 years to Carthage, North Africa, modern-day Tunisia. And I want to tell you the story of two young Christian women, a woman by the name of Perpetua and a woman by the name of Felicitas. Two young Christian women, Perpetua came from a upper-class, wealthy family there in Carthage, and Felicitas was her servant girl. Both of them followers of Jesus. And as the story goes, both of them also, one of them a mother and one pregnant. So both of them Christians who love the Lord. One has children already, one who's getting ready to give birth to a child. And as the story goes, Perpetua, Felicitas, and others are worshiping in a church in North Africa when Roman rulers come in and they pull them out and they take them to 
prison. Soon, Perpetua is faced with a dilemma. Renounce Christ, be released, live the rest of her life, or remain committed to Christ and lose her life, leaving her father, leaving her husband, and leaving her newborn baby in this world. Her father comes to her and he pleads with her to choose family over faith. He says to her, quote, Have pity on my gray hairs, daughter. Have pity on your father, if I'm worthy to be called your father. With my own hands, I tended you like a blossoming flower. I favored you over both of your brothers. So don't cast me aside now to be scorned by men. Think of your brothers. Think of your mother. Think of your son. He won't be able to live without you. Don't be so stubborn or you're going to destroy us all. I want you to put yourself in her shoes. Feel, feel the weight of the situation and the circumstances. Later, given one last opportunity to recant, Perpetua's father shows up to a public hearing holding her baby boy in his arms. And he begs her, just offer a pinch of the incense as sacrifice to the emperor. He says, perform the sacrifice. Have pity on your baby. Even one of the Roman governors tries to persuade her. He says to her, spare your gray-haired father. Spare your infant son. Just make a sacrifice for the emperor's well-being. As you can imagine, this would have been an extremely emotional scene. Perpetua is forced to decide between her faith or her family. She's experiencing exactly what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew chapter 10, the conflict and the division that can be present in the family for those who follow Christ. The one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And as the story goes, as Perpetua hears the plea from her dad, hears the plea from the Roman governor, even after seeing her baby boy with her own eyes, she was unmoved, resolved. Counting the cost, she chose to follow Christ. Felicitas, the servant girl who was with her who had just given birth to her baby, made the same choice. All the other Christians who were with them made the same choice. And so according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, in March of 205, I think there's a, there's a picture that we can show up on the screen that's a reenactment of what happened. Perpetua, Felicitas, several other Christians were marched into the Carthage Amphitheater to be torn apart by wild beasts and killed with the sword. You can travel to Tunisia today. You can see the ruins of this amphitheater where all this took place. A graphic and gut-wrenching story that expresses exactly what Jesus is saying to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And this is hard for us to see, hard for us to look at, but they were putting human beings in the arena and they were releasing bulls to go and gore them and to kill them. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you really want to follow after me, then your love and devotion to me must surpass your love and devotion to anyone or anything else. Jesus is saying, I want you to love your father and mother, but I want you to love me more. I want you to love your, your husband or your wife, but I want you to love me more. I want you to love your son or your daughter, but I want you to love me more. And Jesus is not after outward ritual here. He's not interested in us just going through the religious motions. Jesus wants our hearts. He wants our affections. He wants our 
lives. So Tri-Cities, I ask you this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? Do you love him more than anyone or anything else in this life? I want us to examine our hearts together this morning. Following Jesus requires absolute allegiance. Truth number two, following Jesus requires dying to yourself. Jesus says in verse 38, and whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone who finds his life will lose it. And anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Jesus moves here from the family to the individual, to the self. He makes this even more personal, more direct. This is where he gets serious about what it really means to follow him. He says, take up your cross. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? I want to be clear this morning. This does not mean that disciples of Jesus should go and get themselves killed. Okay, Christianity does not teach salvation by martyrdom. But what Jesus is calling for here is a loyalty and a devotion to him that is so intense that one would be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice for Jesus if necessary. This is Galatians 2.20. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, when we chose to follow Christ, when we, when we made that decision to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus, we chose to let go of the reins. My life is not my own. Your life is not your own. We have been bought with a price. We are servants of the King, and He alone determines the course and the direction of our lives. I don't know what God has in store for you in the days ahead. It may be that the Lord wants to use you right here in East Tennessee to be a witness for him. We know there's needs all around us here in this region. It may be that the Lord just wants to use you right here in this community. It may be for some of you in the room that the Lord wants to use you more in an urban context, in a place like Nashville, in a place like Memphis. Maybe for some of you in the room, the Lord wants to use you in an international context. Maybe he wants to send you to work in a place like Turkey. There's 80 million people there, only 7,000 Christians. And maybe the Lord wants to send you to a place like Japan, 125 million people, less than 1% Christian. I don't know what God has in store for each of you. But I do know that it begins with dying to yourself. And as we think about the the cost of following Christ, we can't help but think about what God is doing right now around the world. Recently, I had a conversation with a man who's lived in Central Asia for 20 years. If I told you the name of the country, you'll be like, oh, I know exactly what country you're talking about because it's been in the news a lot over the past 10, 15, 20 years. And I asked him, you know, what's going on in your country? What is it that you can share with us that the Lord is is doing? He said, well, in recent months, we've seen some things change that we've never seen happen before. A lot of the Christian leaders, a lot of the Christian pastors have begun to publicly identify themselves with Jesus. He said, we've had a number of Christians before, but they've always been below the radar. They've never wanted to publicly identify themselves with Christ. He said, now they're starting to publicly identify. They're starting to be a little bit more bold. And that's bringing more opposition from the government. He said, you know, that's causing some fear, that's causing some worry, that's causing some anxiety amongst these leaders. But he said, with all that going on, God is at work. He says, I just want to tell you a quick story in recent days about a young man who's in the 
farthest part of the country that you can imagine. This young man has started to hear some stories about Jesus and he's become very, very interested. He wants to hear more. We were able to send two of these pastors to visit this young man. He says when they went to visit with him, they were able to share the full gospel with him. He was able to repent of his sins. He was able to trust in Christ for salvation. He says recently this young man who once was a Muslim was recently baptized in a local lake and is now studying the Bible with these two men. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear those kinds of stories, I get really, really excited. And I begin to think, what could God do with a church full of men and women like that who have counted the cost, who say, I understand what lies ahead. I know there may be hardship. I know there may be difficulty, but I'm going to choose to follow Christ regardless. What could God do in this church? What could God do in this community? Jesus says in verse 39, anyone who finds his life will lose it. But anyone who loses his life because of me will find it. Brothers and sisters, I would submit to you this morning that, that we are the exception and not the rule. For most people around the world, following Christ comes at a great cost. We can be often insulated and isolated from the rest of the world and we think that casual, comfortable Christianity is just normal. And we fool ourselves. We believe this myth, this, this lie, that we can follow Jesus on our own terms. Ah, if I want to read my Bible, fine. If I don't, no big deal. If I don't really feel like praying, I don't have to pray. If I want to miss church a week or two or three to do something else, eh, no big deal. If I want to live just like the world, it doesn't really matter. As long as I go through the religious motions, everything's going to be fine in the end. Friends, we're deceiving ourselves. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, just a couple of chapters back, he warns us, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. When we read our Bibles, we don't see any pictures of casual, comfortable Christianity. Jesus says, you want to follow me? It's a call to die to yourself. I can't think of a more counter-cultural statement in our culture today than die to yourself. We're told by everyone around us, express yourself. Be who you are. Treat yourself. Promote yourself. Advance yourself. All of this is self-centered, me-centered individualism. It's pride. And Jesus comes along and says, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Forget yourself. You want to be my disciple? Die to yourself. You want to follow after me? Take up your cross and follow me. This is strong and, and direct language. Think about the, Jesus, the audience that Jesus is speaking to here. Who's he talking to in Matthew chapter 10? He's talking to his disciples. Now, were these words just symbolic? Were they just exaggeration to make a point? Do you know what happened to Jesus' disciples? We talk a lot about the disciples. We talk a lot about who they were before Christ. We talk a lot about their ministry. But we don't often tell the end of the story and how their lives ended. According to tradition, here's what happened to Jesus' disciples. Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by the sword. Mark died in Egypt, being dragged through the street by a horse. Luke hanged in Greece after preaching the gospel. 
John, boiled in hot oil, survived, later died in old age. James, the brother of John, beheaded in Jerusalem. Peter, crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. James, the brother of Jesus, thrown off the top of the temple, survived, beaten to death by clubs. Bartholomew, burned alive and then beheaded. Andrew, crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece. Thomas, stabbed by spears in India, thrown into a fire. Jude, crucified on a cross, pierced with arrows. Matthias, stoned in Jerusalem, then beheaded. Paul, tortured and beheaded in Rome. Friends, following Jesus is, is not a game. Like, Lord, wake us up. Help us to see what it really means to follow after Jesus. Do we hear these words this morning? Christian in the room, I want to ask you a question. What happens when the Taliban comes knocking at your door? What do you do when being a Christian means you're going to lose your job? What happens when your father or mother, your husband or your wife gives you an ultimatum? If you choose to follow Christ, then I'm done with you. What do you do when the government threatens to shut down your church and throw you in prison for speaking truth about Jesus? Friends, these are not if questions. These are when questions. Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. When they persecute you, when that time comes, how will you respond? What does it really mean to follow Jesus? Matthew 10 says, Jesus requires absolute allegiance and he requires dying to yourself. Now, as we conclude this morning, you hear these words and this feels kind of heavy. Maybe you, you, you hear these words, you read these words and you feel the way that I feel. Maybe you feel a little bit inadequate. Maybe you read these words and the intensity behind them and, and you're a little bit disoriented. Maybe you feel like you don't quite measure up as a follower of Jesus. Maybe you feel like you're a failure. And I would say to you, you're not alone. I think all of us, when we read this text, when we read this passage, we feel like we don't measure up to the standard that Jesus is laying before us here. And if we're honest, we feel like we can't do it. We feel like we can't follow Jesus in this way. And the truth is, you alone, me alone, in our own strength alone, we can't live our lives this way. But brothers and sisters, hear me this morning. By the power of the Spirit, through the blood of Christ, we can follow Jesus in this way. As new creations in Christ, we can follow after him in the power of the Spirit. Daily, we can abide in his word. We can be doers of the word. We can live our lives for the glory of God we can live for Jesus in the context of our jobs. We can live our lives for Jesus in the context of our families. We can live our lives for Jesus in our neighborhoods. And I want to I encourage you and urge you this morning to follow Jesus in faith. Don't put your faith and your hope in yourself. Don't put your faith and your hope in a mom or a dad and a husband or a wife. Don't put your hope in a job, in possessions, in comfort, in security. Die to yourself. Put your faith in Jesus and what he did for you on the cross. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved. In the resurrection, he demonstrated victory over sin and death. Jesus did it. 
He accomplished what we could not accomplish. So fix your eyes on Jesus. Follow after him. The author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. How do we do that? Verse 2, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. In a, in a chaotic, in a confused and crazy world, in a world of a, a global pandemic where Christians are being persecuted and suffering all around us, look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. As I close this morning, before I pray, I just want to share a story that I heard from an old Baptist preacher. This Baptist preacher tells the story of a bunch of missionaries who are getting on a boat, getting ready to go and sail to Africa. And as the captain of the boat is looking at them, he's watching them kind of come on the boat one by one. He looks at them and eventually decides he wants to, to mock them. And he says to them, what are you doing? Why are you going to Africa? You know that you're only going to die over there. And one of the missionaries looks back at the captain and he says, Captain, we all died long before this journey ever started. This is the call of the Christian life. It's, it's a call to live. It's a call to die. It's a call to spend your life for the glory of God here and around the world until he returns. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we gather before you this morning with, with heavy hearts as we read these words and we consider what does it truly mean to follow after you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it cuts us to the heart. The way that it, it points out areas where we have not submitted our lives to you. It points out idols that we have in our lives, barriers and obstacles that we have keeping us from worshiping you and living our lives for you. Father, we thank you for, for this word, the way it's been passed down from generation to generation, the way that it's been translated so that we can read it and understand it. Father, I want to thank you this morning for this Christ-honoring church. Thank you for a church that, that teaches and preaches God's word. Thank you for a congregation, brothers and sisters, that love you and desire to follow after you. Father, I pray this morning that we would be men, of, men and women of faith. Not faith in our own strength and our own abilities, but faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and faith in his second coming. Father, we pray the same thing for our brothers and sisters around the world, those in India and Nigeria and Afghanistan and so many other places. We pray that you would strengthen them, encourage them, that you would give them a peace and a boldness and a confidence that can only come from you. Father, we pray this morning that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds, that you would shape us and form us more into the image of Christ. Father, when everything else around us crumbles, that we would remember, if we have Christ, we have everything. We have the greatest treasure. Father, in all these things, we pray that you would find us faithful, that you would use us for your redemptive purposes in the world. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.